Welcome to the Personality Psychology Podcast. My name is Rebecca Weidmann, and today I am joined by three professors and experts in the field of narcissism. Joshua Miller from the University of Georgia in the United States. Hi. Caroline Morf from the University of Bern in Switzerland. Hi. And Mitya Buck from the University of Münster in Germany. Hi. Thank you for being here today. To get a better feeling of what professors in the field of narcissism do, can each of you maybe tell me something about your research line in general and one specific project that you're currently working on? Um, I've been interested in sort of the basic structure of narcissism, especially using a, a sort of a basic trait perspective. I use the five-factor model uh, to do so and you know, started off trying to understand the heterogeneity in narcissism, and that led me down the path to trying to winnow narcissism into sort of more grandiose and vulnerable presentations, and then more recently arguing that maybe a, a three-factor structure, one level below the grandiose vulnerable, is the most sort of useful where you have something like agentic extroversion and antagonism that together describe grandiose narcissism and antagonism and, and sort of narcissistic neuroticism that describes the more vulnerable presentations. So that's what a lot of my narcissism work has been doing. It's, it's kind of a slow time in my lab right now for narcissism stuff. We're doing other things a little bit. We are looking at whether uh, the use of ayahuasca, which is a uh, sort of an ancient psychedelic that we recently found changed basic personality traits lasting up to a month follow-up. We're looking at if that has any change on narcissism and also just sort of doing some assessment stuff for people who want to use very brief measures of narcissism. There's a single item measure out there that I don't love. So our lab is doing a little bit to see if you had to use one item, what item should it be? Well, I'd be looking forward to getting that item when you discover it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so um, I, I've been studying narcissism way back since my master's thesis. The impetus for studying narcissism comes from my interest in self-regulatory processes. So I've always been fascinated by how people construct and um, try to maintain a certain self that they're trying to create and portray. Narcissism is interesting in that respect because narcissists are continuously engaging in online construction of the self. I mean, online on a daily basis, not online in the media, although that may be too, and we'll get to that later. And uh, at the same time, they may sometimes undermine the self that they're trying to build. At least that's um, what we thought when we started out. It turns out that maybe they undermine it less than we initially thought. Um, but that was the starting point for the research. I've studied narcissism broadly in interpersonal interaction or even looking at uh, mental associations using priming and lexical decision paradigms. Currently, or the last few years, I've been working on dyadic processes in couples. So I've been interested in looking at why do relationships work um, despite partners with high narcissism levels, so what are the buffering factors? And we've looked at commitment or partner regard as moderators. And you asked about a specific project um, that we're currently working on. This is a project I'm working on with my doctoral student, Sandra Blore, and we're looking at perceived benefits in relationships with narcissists. So what do the partners perceive as benefits in these relationships? And a, prelim a prelim preliminary finding, sorry, is one um, showing that partners of narcissists perceive that their narcissistic partners help them move closer to their goals. And that seems to be a benefit for those people. For narcissists themselves, they seem to benefit from idealizing the partner or from basking in the reflected glory of the partner. And those perceived benefits contribute to dyadic adjustment for both partners. So these are preliminary findings um, that we're continuing to work on. I and my team are very much interested in the, um, more generally, in the interplay of personality and social relationships and uh, particularly the social interaction processes uh, that explain how certain individuals end up in certain relationships and how uh, social experiences um, shape one's uh, personality. And I think narcissism is a very interesting construct uh, to focus on when being interested in these, these processes. Um, and I stumbled over this construct when, when learning my own data that uh, obviously narcissists uh, were better liked at zero acquaintance, which was somewhat surprising given that 
if you ask people what do you think of a narcissist everybody would uh, give very negative uh, evaluations so this is, was how i stumbled uh, over this this is concert and over, over the last few years, we have worked on both explaining how uh, narcissism plays out with regard to psychological processes. And we developed the narcissistic admiration and rivalry concept and an accompanying measure to measure two different ways of expressing and pursuing um, narcissistic goals. And then we have worked on a couple of different projects uh, looking at how narcissism relates to leadership positions, for example, how it relates to uh, romantic relationships. And more recently, we are, we are very much interested in, in the role of social status. So one idea is that social status plays a special uh, role for narcissists as a key motivation. And for example, in one project, we are uh, right now working with experience sampling uh, data to see if uh, narcissists react more positively and more negatively to, to challenges and chances for, for social status. Uh, so this one one project we are currently working on. Thank you so much for sharing. So today we're going to talk about several questions about narcissism. But before we dive into it, could you maybe define what narcissism is? Also, how is it different from other concepts that people might know, such as like self-esteem or narcissistic personality disorder? most difficult question first <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> very plainly uh, one i think most agree that um, narcissism pertains to individual differences in the degree how much people see themselves as grandiose special and how much they deserve a special treatment uh, so i think this is, this is a very very basic aspect of narcissism and then there are all kinds of ideas with what kinds of strategies this goes along with and where this comes from on a, on a deeper motivational level. And this is what, what we are looking in more recently. I would say narcissism reflects an excessive and perhaps rigid strive for, for social status. That's one way of defining it. One thing that perhaps is missing in that description, I agree with everything you said, of course, narcissism also comes with a negative view of other people an important aspect of narcissism so they think that they are worth more than others they look down on others they criticize them so it's not just the grandiose self that has it and entitled self but also this negative view of others something that Nietzsche said i just want to highlight once more i think almost by definition Narcissism is an interpersonal construct because they're constantly involved in self-promotion, showing that they're better than others, they want to be superior. So a lot of what one observes is in the social arena. And I, I think the thing that we're missing right now that probably Josh should add is the continuum from grandiose to vulnerable and the different facets um, that coexist in narcissism. Yeah, I mean, just to go back to the first thing, I don't think it's that similar to self-esteem. I mean, I think that is something that was thought, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, and you almost always saw people controlling for self-esteem when doing narcissism research. My recent grad student, Cortland Hyde, has a nice paper summarizing differences in their nomological network across many samples. And so grandiose narcissism and self-esteem are only correlated about 0.3, and in fact, vulnerable mm -hmm. narcissism is negatively correlated with uh, so very far from, you know, synonymous and very different sort of correlates in terms of self-esteem being almost entirely adaptive, really. And, and narcissism obviously having many, many things that are quite maladaptive. The way I think of it is that, you know, narcissism, those people view the world in a zero-sum approach, kind of. That, like, mm -hmm. if I'm good, it means you must be less good. Whereas I think of sort of high self-esteem people can be like, I'm doing a great job and Rebecca, so are you. Right? And that's a key difference, that a narcissistic individual would have a very hard time saying that we're both doing very well unless somehow you were in my network enough that I could feel good about your, that your success reflected on me. But if, without that, so I think that's an important part. Um, and sort of narcissistic mm -hmm. personality disorder, I think of as sort of a step above in the hierarchy of grandiose and vulnerable as just sort of pathological. It could be pathological in more vulnerable ways where there's negative affectivity, there's a lot of preoccupation with one's failures, but how they're due to other people's sort of misrecognitions, misappreciation. So, so I think it's, I think narcissistic personality disorder can be a sort of a blending of the grandiose and vulnerable ones. But I don't like to think of NPD as being fundamentally different really than narcissism. I, I don't like that 
conceptualization. I think it's really a severity issue, the severity of impairments and the severity of the rigidity that Mitya brought up. I think when you get in trouble is when you don't have any other ways to feel good about yourself or feel good about what's going on in your world than via sort of direct ego reinforcement, really. So I think it very much is a continuum. Some put it forth as a sort of normal narcissism versus pathological as if they're separable. And, and personally, I don't support that distinction. It can also be a question of context and fit, don't you think? So, I mean, you can think of NPD individuals as failed narcissists. And depending where you are or what abilities you have, you can fail with very different values in these different aspects of, of narcissism, right? In a way, so how personal disorders are defined, it also has to do with how well do you live or arrange yourself within your context in, in which you live. And what you bring to bear too, right? That like, if you're a very wealthy narcissistic individual, like life probably goes better for you than if you're a very poor one, or if you're very good looking, you know, like there are all these kind of other key factors that probably moderate the degree that to which narcissism is related to success or failure. So is there this term of like high functioning narcissism where people are very narcissistic, but it works so well for them. And so it doesn't construe a lot of problems. It's not a term used very regularly. I think we would just think of that person as probably being lower on the continuum. Your point might be, Rebecca, that they might be as high, but for whatever reason. I, I think also it can just depend on which traits are most salient. If we again go back to that three-factor structure, someone that has more of what Mitya calls admiration or the extroverted part, right? That Those people are largely going to function better, right? Because those are the traits that are more likable and and do well in interpersonal settings, occupational settings, right? It's it's the antagonism part, right? The, the degree to which you're sort of just fully incapable of empathizing with others, connecting with others in meaningful reciprocal ways that I think. So if you think about like which part of the makeup you have, if it's 75% extroversion and 25% you know, the callousness or vice versa, that's probably has quite meaningful implications for how well you're likely to do. But it, it can go both ways, right? So. Um, even if you're high on agentic narcissism, if you fail for whatever reason, the antagonism part is going to come out more and then you'll um, have more trouble. So I think we all endorse the sort of continuum idea and not a categorical difference between narcissistic personality disorder and the well-functioning narcissist because it's um, the person is... Uh, embedded in the social environment and it just depends on how well they've made their environment function for them and when that falls apart then um, they can slide down the continuum to the more um, vulnerable and where there's more trouble and disability interpersonal or for narcissists with a high vulnerable expression even um, distress intrapersonal sorry. Thank you. So you've covered a lot of also already how people who are higher in narcissism act, think and feel. Can you go more into how Brandio's narcissism is defined in terms of behavior and thoughts and feelings and also vulnerable narcissism? Yeah, sure. So, so I think it's, it's again very helpful to distinguish these three aspects Josh was mentioning because they come along with different strategies in everyday life. So for example, in, in our concept, we, we talk about uh, admiration as the result of an assertive self-promotional strategy. So um, this relates to self-assured, proactive, and often charismatic behaviors. On the other hand, this more antagonistic uh, route we call uh, uh, rivalry, which comes along with yeah, more annoyed, aggressive behaviors and the devaluation of others Carolyn was referring to. And then um, it might be that over time, so this is my idea of how this might develop, but over time, if both of these strategies don't play out, then people might develop a further more neurotic strategy uh, connected to withdrawal and perhaps cynicism. So still thinking of themselves as being some, something special, but no longer expecting special treatment from their environment. Expected, but but not succeed at it, right? Yeah. So the, the vulnerable um, narcissists are less assertive, they're less able to self-promote. Um, they still think they're due um, to have special favors, but they just can't translate it into everyday life. I was going to say, not to make it too political, but I just think Donald Trump is such an incredible example of 
pathological narcissism. And we just watched on the world stage four years of both the admiration part that Mitya talked about, the constantly bragging about one's achievements, even when they were achievements of other you know, administrations, even though they were not achievements at all. And then the also sort of simultaneous denigration of others, right? Anyone that criticized him, anyone that's seen as a rival, even within his party, is put down, is attacked, is aggressed against. I literally, I mean, I, I just don't think we could write a better prototypical description of how narcissism can play out in truly pathological ways and why we as a, as a world should care more about these constructs. I mean, often as a clinical psychologist, bothered that we pay so much attention to just the internalizing disorders where people feel bad about themselves. And of course, I want, as an anxious person, I want research that helps understand why people like myself feel that way and how we can feel better, but we minimize the people who cause others so much damage, right? I mean, I think I'm sort of shocked by how much in my own country, NIMH seems to pay less attention to these acting out behaviors when we see the immense danger and implications of these disorders. Thank you, yeah. How does narcissism relate to relationships, social relationships? Like what are the problems that arise in romantic relationships, friendships, in, in the work environment that people deal with when, when they deal with someone who is higher on the narcissism spectrum? So I think it, it, it helps to, to distinguish different phases in, in relationships. So what we see across different relationship types is that narcissists come across very positively in early acquaintance stages, both when selecting friends, selecting romantic partners in dating situations, but also when people are asked uh, to give others leadership positions. So regarding social status, it seems to pay off in early acquaintance uh, um, contexts. And later on, we often see yeah, more difficulties arise. There's more conflict in, in romantic relationships. People are annoyed if people continue bragging uh, and do not really listen um, to, to others. So I think this is a, the basic pattern we see across different types of relations. I think it masquerades as high self-esteem at first. Who wouldn't want a high self-esteem romantic partner, friend, colleague, department head? Like Mitya said, that um, the self-confidence the charm, the, the, what seems like maybe appropriate assertiveness at first is very alluring to all of us. And it, it takes some time to see, oh, you know, this person never asked how my day went. Or every time we get a cup of coffee, we talk only about what's going on in their lives or in their research lab, right? And, and so over time you think, boy, this gets less and less pleasurable. And that's when you start removing yourself from or, or diminishing the closeness of that relationship. And that's a, that's a very, very good point. So it's, it's not time per se that influences the effects of narcissism, but the context in which you are with a narcissist and because why are the acquaintance process, process, the context change. So the context get more intimate. We no longer self-present ourselves and it's nice to have an ice, icebreaker, but we are really talking about more intense topics or want to learn more about the other person. And then in this context, so narcissism doesn't pay off. I mean, I think if we even think of basic personality research, like thin slice approaches, People pick up on extroversion, even from zero acquaintance, like just the way, you, like pictures, you can kind of judge pretty well how extroverted someone is. So we do that pretty well. So we're doing that when we think this person is gonna be an extroverted, outgoing, fun person. What we don't do very well in thin slices or zero acquaintances is pick up on agreeableness, right? And that's what takes more time. And, and that's the part yeah. where we start saying, oh, I don't feel good when I leave my lunch with this person or what therapists feel over time with those patients, right? Is that, boy, I dread these sessions. I never feel as good about myself. They make me question how good I am at what I do, right? Now in real life, I mean, people are in relationships with narcissists. Uh, you both talked about leaving. That's one option, right? So you can, you can when you've detected, which is maybe not immediate, you can walk you can walk out. The question is, what do you do if you're going to stay? And I think you basically either you leave or you have to make an ally out of the narcissist and align yourself with that person to make it work. So uh, make to somehow get a narcissist to be uh, more communal and to be to somehow activate the interpersonal responsibility, make, make the narcissist feel part of the communion seems to be the only way to keep a relationship going at a good level with a narcissist. I've also come to think of it 
as more of like a taste in some ways. Like this is what I used to always thought about histrionic personality disorder was there wasn't a lot of evidence that histrionic personality disorder was super impairing socially. And yet I always found it very annoying myself and people and in clients. And I realized it's just a taste. I don't like that taste. Like some people don't like blue cheese. I love blue cheese, but some people hate it. And I've come to realize, I think that narcissism, which is clearly a very sibling construct to histrionism in some ways, is that some people really hate being around narcissistic people. It drives them crazy. And yet others seem okay with it. They may not love it, but it doesn't drive them nuts, really. You know, mm -hmm. And that's why they're able to be married to them or be friends with them or even give them what they need. I mean, it's just right. as a, a joke. I know someone's very narcissistic and they often do very narcissistic things on social media and people give them what they need, that adulation. And I always... Mm -hmm think I would never give this person adulation. They're, they're so searching for this. And I that probably says something awful about myself that I can't be compassionate to them, but I'm like, I will not give you a like for that. And other people I think either don't notice it or they know they need it. And they just think, what do I have to lose to give them? I'll feed their ego. Uh -huh. So that's what makes me think in some ways it's the main effect of it on people's liking isn't as strong as some other personality stories where we almost all would agree, ooh, that personality sort of no one really loves being around that kind of person. Yeah, I, I like that idea of taste. I, I really do. The research that we're engaged in right now, looking at these, ben what are the benefits for the partners of being in these relationships is going in that direction. It's not as explicit. It's not so much that I realize I like being with this person or I need this person. But when you ask them what kinds of benefits they get out of their relationship, then we, you learn things like this person helps them move towards their ideals. They may not be explicitly aware of it, but can report it in, in this context. It's a very interesting question. So who gets along with, with narcissists? And it's, it's also not only regarding narcissism, but, but generally regarding effects of personality, we have pretty good insight into actor and partner effects, but the relationship effects are by far the largest share uh, we have, but we, uh, can almost never explain them. So you don't have any clue what matches between the characteristics of actors and partners relate to, to these outcomes. So this is a very interesting, interesting question. Yeah, we've done a, a couple of studies, you know, just even seeing, trying to understand in the, in the romantic relationship thing. And one of the things I came away with is how little homophily there is actually. So you think, well, well maybe narcissistic people are strongly joining up with other narcissistic people or the, you know, the victim hypothesis. I mean, I just call it that. That's not the formal term. But in online, you often see this idea that psychopathic and narcissist people are like sharks and they're searching for weakness. And that so their partners might be instead of being also grand, maybe they'll look for people they can manipulate. And and you find like so little of that. And, and what I come away, came away with largely was like almost anyone could end up being in a relationship with a narcissistic individual romantically and i su suspect even that probably means the same thing friendship wise too so in some ways it's kind of troubling it means that we might all be somewhat at risk of it or that we're not very good at protecting ourselves from relationships with these individuals and maybe if it is more like a taste maybe we some people shouldn't have to worry about it that much they they like it and or can just tolerate it in a way that uh, maybe some other people won't one additional thought if you don't want to end up with a narcissist another uh, idea would be to to somehow change getting acquaintance, the getting acquaintance process. So theoretically, you could try to create situations that potentially evoke more problematic behaviors in narcissists so that, that you can have a clue earlier how disagreeable someone is. For example, mm -hmm. in selection interviews, this would be uh, possible. I think in the romantic relationship part, it's more difficult because it's, it doesn't feel natural <laughs> to kind of ask very intimate questions or to provoke someone when, when dating, right? But, but in theory, you, you can change the, the context more early on to, to learn about behaviors that are diagnostic of later relationship mm -hmm. consequences. Something that you've all covered is that most people don't want to be with narcissists and we don't want to hire narcissists, but are there any advantages to the narcissist to being narcissistic or any advantages to a company to having someone who is very agentic and extroverted mm. and self-promotive? Is there any good about narcissism? The most obvious answer is we have such a large range of uh, narcissism values, so large variability, and uh, this is for a reason. <laughs> so if narcissism would be all bad, 
we all would have very low values in narcissism, so narcissism wouldn't exist, right? So there are obviously a, a number of niches and a number of positive consequences. Example, giving energy, being a stress buffer for the individual, providing uh, resources, being able to perhaps also um, promote a joint joint effort when, when it's risky. So I think there are a number of positive consequences in narcissism. You know, in times of when change is needed, I guess there's the idea that narcissistic leaders would do well because they would come in and move things around and they care less about people, so they'll let people go and so on. Question is, what happens then in the next phase? You would almost have to try to replace them with someone else. Um, but for certain tasks, it certainly would be beneficial to bring in someone who is narcissistic, I think. And I think Beach's lab or collaborators labs you know, have shown that like the costs of self-promotion, self-enhancement aren't as bad as we would think. Mm -hmm. And if narcissistic people mostly care about sort of agentic things, but not communal. So if I right now tell you all, hey, I'm podcasting from my $5 million house, right? You might all think, boy, Josh is a dick. But you might also think, wow, he's got a lot of money. And if I only <laughs> care that you know I have a lot of money and I don't care that you don't like me, well, I've succeeded because you all now go tell your friends. Josh has got a $5 million house. And I think that's how <laughs> narcissistic people view it to some degree. If I mm -hmm. get on Twitter later and tell people about my latest great paper and, or some thing, people may not like me as a person, but they do then know more about what I'm doing academically. And that may help people, right? Just when we think about being on the job market or whatever, is that that's sort of self-promotional things. Even if distasteful to some of us, may have real positives or people wouldn't keep doing it, right? And yet they do because it does work. I don't have a $5 million house, just to be clear. <laughs> that was the question. <laughs> Academia has not been that good to me. But are there certain areas in life that breed narcissism? Like I often think about academia because you have to self-promote, you have to stand in front of people and be like, look, this is worth your funding. I am worth your funding. But also maybe... Hollywood and also social media, are there platforms or areas in life that kind of attract narcissism or make people narcissistic? We have these results regarding the mean level differences in certain occupations, so celebrities, media, perhaps management, politicians, they're their higher means. But of course, the question is, is this a selection or socialization effect? I think we have stronger evidence for selection effects so that people with higher values end up in certain occupations. And at least right now, not very strong evidence for, for socialization effects. Perhaps there, there are more chances for narcissism to play out in these, these uh, occupations. Um, but of course, also in others, there is wide variety in narcissism and a lot of chances to search for social status, including academia. Mm -hmm. Social status is very important in academia. We have all kinds of of uh, indices and, and numbers and positions we can look at. It, it's, it's, so there are different playing grounds uh, all over the place where narcissists could start. I've been long really bothered by the idea that the best sampling for narcissism is clinical samples. Like I, I think that's exactly opposite, that the, the samples you get in clinical settings are important, but a specific niche of sort of narcissism really and that should be looking much more in like IO type samples and just even just regular community samples. If grandiose narcissism is negatively related to treatment seeking, then in some ways, if you want to study that, that's the last place you should go, frankly. Mm -hmm. And yet for decades, like when you publish that, if you weren't using that kind of sample, that would be a limitation you had to say, which I, I really think is not correct. We should be looking in, in, like Mitra said, in these places where narcissistic people can select themselves into because they're so well suited because they prize self-promotion, autonomy, those kinds of things. And what do we know about how narcissism develops across the lifespan? Are there, so first how it emerges, is there a parenting style that promotes narcissism maybe in children and youth? And then later on, how is like the age trend um, on average in narcissism? We certainly know that there is a parenting style that contributes to narcissism from Eddie Brummelmann and colleagues' work. shows that overvaluation promotes narcissism. So putting the kid on the pedestal and overly praising the individual, probably just being overly ambitious as a parent um, and um, wanting 
to show off with a child, promote narcissism, anything that fosters contingent self-esteem in kids is going to promote narcissism in contrast to factors like warmth that are more likely to promote genuine self-esteem. I yeah. love Eddie's work, but I also think the effects are small. Like I yeah. go back to what Misha was saying That's in terms true. of like socialization. They are, they're there, but they are small. There's remarkably little developmental work. I mean, one study that used Jack Block's you know, longitudinal data set from Berkeley, <laughs> when they sort of repurpose it to look at basic traits and thus traits that relate to narcissism, they were able to identify preschoolers that were pretty narcissistic. And those same preschoolers were still more narcissistic, you know, at age like 16, 13, 16, 20. So I also think this arises early and, and looks like, you know, somewhat basic temperament. And so that the parenting probably mm -hmm. can make it worse, you know, or can round the edges off by um, trying to mitigate that over sort of self-focus. But yeah, I, I think that finding parenting effects for vulnerable narcissism, you know, in terms of retrospective reports, they say all kinds of negative parenting was received, particularly like intrusive parenting, which is kind of like- But this is what neurotics do with everything of, you ask Of course, right? <laughs> right. It's really hard to know without, exactly. And vulnerable narcissism is so similar to psychopathology writ large and borderline personality disorder, right? So for grandiose, it's remarkably hard to find robust parenting effects that, that I have seen, either when you ask retrospectively or even like in eddies where you're doing it in the moment, which is obviously a much better strategy. But isn't it interesting that, that research on narcissism is still so obsessed about parents? So I'm, I mean, in, in personality psychology more broadly, we know for quite a while that parenting is not necessarily the, the, the most important environmental resource. So we would wouldn't expect that specifically for narcissism. So we, I think we need much more work on, on the effect of peer groups, on the effect of occupational trajectories and so forth. Yeah. But don't you, I think of that all the time. I was saying that my dad is a psychoanalytic psychologist and I think about it all the time. It's like, you know, Freud did a lot of great things in terms of bringing the unconscious to mind and stuff. But I, I sometimes wonder, like, if he didn't come to America, you know, he came and gave these big lectures and America got fascinated with Freud, like, would we have emphasized so much the role of parenting? You know, I, I don't know. Like, I agree with Mitra. We've gotten too obsessed with the idea that parenting, you know, plays this critical role in the development of psychopathology. Now, obviously, extraordinarily bad parenting and childhood sexual abuse and neglect. But within the range of sort of the normal distribution parts, it's not clear to me that parenting has hugely robust effects on narcissism or other forms of psychopathology. With you both, that the, the effect is very small, but it is there in Eddie's work. And I still think it's interesting just as a reminder to counteract sort of the self-esteem movement, which promoted that to some degree. But the, the differences in narcissism arise early on and they stay stable across life. I think that's an important factor. And of course, there are some mean level changes, so, so higher right. scores in young middle adulthood as compared to older age, with, which fits very well with, with a range of theories like socio-emotional selectivity theory. So getting resources early on and, and securing fewer resources, resources later on. So, yeah. So Joshi also mentioned that temperament is, plays a role. So this means it might be largely genetically based narcissism or how, what do we know about the genetic underpinnings of the narcissism? As always, 50%. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, there's been very few behavior genetic studies on narcissism specifically. I mean, there's a couple and Meech is exactly right. It's in that 0.4 to 0.5 range, like everything else. So I don't think it's, it's not anywhere up there, like say schizophrenia of things or autism. And it's not remarkably low that would suggest it's pure error or, you know, environment. And of course, there's no specific gene <laughs> and no other specific biological indicator robustly related. But there may also be an aspect of narcissism that differentiates grandiose from vulnerable. So the grandiose aspect is more approach-oriented, more positive affectivity in contrast to the vulnerable end, which is correlates more with um, negative affect and with avoidance. Yeah. That's in a temperament aspect that relates to narcissism. Is it possible that narcissism changes due to life events or therapy or something maybe more or less dramatic that happens that people kind of start to reflect on their personality? 
you know, we, we haven't done many or any randomized clinical trials to really look at what would work therapeutically. I mean, I think there's some work from psychodynamic thinking that could, you know, change that processing really like giving very explicit feedback in the moment about how you're making me feel as a therapist and, and, and allowing for that kind of interaction in a way that people in the real world won't always give you that kind of frank feedback. I think the you know, mo motivational interviewing approaches that we use for substance use also hold some hope for these kind of antagonistic disorders where you really get the person to acknowledge the ambivalence they have about these traits, the ways in which they help them, but also the very explicit costs to those behaviors. What have you lost as a result of being so self-focused and so competitive in your worldview? And, and then maybe, as I think Mitra or Caroline said, you know, in terms of the failed narcissist, you know, maybe that over time, if you get kicked in the pants enough by romantic mm -hmm. partners, not getting promotions, maybe some people will turn introspective enough to do the, the heavy work with peers, friends, or a therapist to try to make some incremental changes. Or people who've been told often enough that they are narcissistic um, and that they need to change, sometimes I think they will try. An important point is I think they can change and they do change to some degree. And I think it's it seems I'm not a clinician, so I can't speak directly to this. Um, but I, I know um, some research by um, Agrodnachuk and colleagues. They looked at change in interpersonal behavior through therapy in uh, narcissistic patients and found indeed that their interpersonal behavior became improved. It wasn't, I think there were all kinds of different therapies that were applied, so there was no clear connection between specific types of therapy, but there was change in interpersonal behavior showing that they became less aggressive, that they would empathize more and more caring and were more willing to enjoy the other person's positive outcomes, things like that. So I think there is work showing that there is change and that it's certainly possible if people are motivated enough. One of the problems in that study too was I think the dropout rate was something like 63% or so. So narcissists often don't stay in therapy, which seems to be a big problem. And do people in the environment have enough influence? Like, let's say I have a narcissistic partner and he has those fits and is very antagonistic and so forth. How much possibility is there for me to spur or motivate change i don't my partner's awesome but just in case. <laughs> just like my five million dollar house yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> depends a bit on the on, on the rigidity of these narcissistic styles right so some are more rigid other others less and i think one important point is that it's not only about the the insights so the work by Edgar carlson shows that that narcissists pretty much know about the narcissistic qualities they just don't care mm -hmm. yeah maybe i'm narcissistic right. but i'm also awesome and that's why this is like with other personality traits this is the way people developed over time to cope with the world so their established way of coping with the world in in therapy or in a partnership um, one would need to develop alternative slightly alternative habits and ways of coping with the world that still feel nice given the motivational setup of all of these individuals yeah, I tend to be, I guess, pessimistic about personality change in general in some ways that we know how to do it very well. I think the effects will be small, but I think they'll be meaningful. I don't think you're going to make the most narcissistic or most psychopathic individual the lowest. But I think even small increments can be very meaningful that, for that person and for their loved ones. So by being pessimistic about change, I don't mean that that, that change wouldn't be meaningful. I sort of believe in the power of small effects, uh, but I just don't think we should hope for or expect really robust changes. Communal activation seems to be a really important factor so that um, narcissists would see their personal goals as communal goals. I mean, those would be small shifts that might help negotiate relationships for narcissists. Or there's um, one study showing in the organizational domain that narcissists who identify with the organization conduct less counterproductive work behavior. So it seems to be this identification or overlap between the self and the other that seems to help foster more positive behavior. If it's okay, I would shift the conversation to public attention about narcissism. 
I think narcissism is one of the most popular topics in personality psychology. And like when I go on YouTube, there are many experts who tell me how to deal with a narcissist and also a lot of books. What do you think is so fascinating in your opinion about narcissism? But also, what do you think? Why is the public so fascinated by narcissism? I think it comes back to what um, Josh said earlier about how, I mean, they have this self-regulatory dilemma. They, they are looking for applause and um, will try to self-promote, so they, so they need others to admire them. Um, yet they seem to be inept at it, but still get away with it and even succeed often, right? And that's, I think that's what's really fascinating about it because you just don't understand how can that work? We can all see you know, that they are idiots. Why do they get away with it, right? I just find the brazenness of it mm -hmm. remarkable. I just find the overt grandiosity, the bragging to such extraordinary levels. Because we're all taught very from a very early age, for the most part, I think, that, that that's a bad look. We shouldn't do that. We should not brag to our friends about that my bike costs $500 more than your bike. And so that they're just throwing these sort of strongly head held social values out and just rejecting them wholesale. I, I find that incredible. I mean, every single day on Twitter, I am amazed that people are willing to be so remarkably self-promotional. And I have to admit, like I, I talked to one of my colleagues about this, like sometimes I admire it almost. Like sometimes I think, I wish I could brag about some accomplishments, but I know it would make me feel gross inside if I did it, you know? So I, I don't, and that's, but sometimes I almost like applaud. It's like they don't, they're like a race car without a brake. That's what draws me to like, I just find it fascinating. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So I'm, I'm also, also fascinated by these paradoxical social effects. And, and also the, the, the fact that, that we all do not like narcissists when people ask us about narcissists, but then again, they have these positive social consequences. And I think it's, it's very important to think about not only these consequences from the perspective of the narcissist, but also from the perspective of others. Others' responses, others' praise is a very important factor for why this, this works the way it, it does. So in a way, it's also asking ourselves what kind of behavior do we promote and what kind of behavior do we not promote? So obviously, this is, this is a behavior we, we are promoting, and that has a number of positive consequences, too. Is there something that the public gets, like, maybe also repeatedly wrong about narcissism um, or some myths about narcissism? So, so maybe we, we disagree here, but I think one, one popular myth to me is that grandiose narcissists are necessarily feeling very small and insecure deep down inside. So I think, to me, this is kind of... Uh, a very nice explanation for the public so that they don't feel need to feel so bad so at least <laughs> they are very small deep down inside i don't think that we have good empirical evidence uh, for this so we see this of course in in narcissistic patients because they developed problems but i don't think we really see this across different methodologies in the normal range of, of narcissism but what we do see is that they can't handle criticism and that they're on the lookout for deceit and those kinds of things, which suggest um, to me that um, they don't want their veneer to be threatened in any way. So that may not be feeling um, small or vulnerable deep down inside. I agree with that. But there is certain um, certainly this aspect of um, not being able to deal with criticism that also um, contrasts narcissism with self-esteem. I mean, and, and this has to do with different goals, right? So uh, right. people high in, in self-esteem, they, they feel good about themselves, but this is not enough for, for narcissists. So if your goal right. is to have a high social status, then being criticized blocks this, this, this goal, right? Exactly. I agree with Micho's take on that. And you see it in general. I just saw on Twitter the other day someone someone was acting badly, not even narcissistically, aggressively, and the person said, oh, you know, somebody commented, oh, the self-hatred. It's just so fascinating that we need to enact these unconscious motives that we have no evidence for. The person that was being, we had no evidence that their aggression was due to feeling small or little inside. I think it is, again, a throwback to what Freud has wrought to some degree, as we always believe there's something unconscious and it must be some sort of wound that they're, you know, sort of 
working against. And I, I just don't think, and it could be that our methodology is not sophisticated yet, but I think robust work, you know, and we're all moving towards that, obviously, right, with open science framework, like, makes it seem like we, we don't have good, like Mitra said, I don't think we have good evidence for that fragility, right? They're reactive, they're angry, and they're going to defend their dominance, but I don't know that we have to think that they're small inside to be reactive to threats to status, dominance, superiority, whatever. Perhaps one other myth that I wanted to, to name is the Generation Me thing. Most studies we have so far, the historical studies we have, do not suggest that generations became more narcissistic over time, although this is a very popular and very well-sold idea. And I think going off that and to the question you had asked, Rebecca, is like, is there evidence that social media is making us much more narcissistic? I think, again, it's it's a wonderful chance to, to behave narcissistically more than that it's making everyone narcissistic. I mean, it's a sort of just a confirmation or availability heuristic, right? Is It's easy to see people behaving narcissistically on there, but it's probably not, in fact, making these younger generations remarkably more narcissistic. That's super interesting. So I... I ask the last two questions. What would be your number one tip as a mentor of early career scholars? To be courageous and to go after what you want. I mean, you know, is it if it's a fellowship or an award or a job, don't assume that you won't get it, pursue it. But at the same time, uh, I think it's really important that people pursue things that really excite them. So something that's going to fascinate you and fascinate you for a long time and not just to go after a degree or go after a prestigious job, but really to, to pursue something that um, they can stick with, something that's exciting and fascinating. Yeah, totally. So I would also say, so follow your most, most ambitious ideas. Try to write them down, boil them down, and, and also discuss them with, with the brightest people you know in your field and beyond. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's very, very important. But yeah, don't focus too much on small, easy goals ahead of you. And I would just say, I mean, be generous and be collaborative. I mean, I just think the best science is so often, you know, I mean, the thing I love about this job so much is working with really smart grad students and really smart colleagues and um, learning from them, watching the students grow. I think science is best done as a team. That doesn't mean there aren't some people who do incredible stuff by themselves in a lab, but I know I would not be half as successful if it wasn't for the fact that I get to so regularly collaborate with people across the spectrum in terms of early career to very senior. And I, I just think it makes it so much more fun and rewarding and typically a better product. And what are things that you like about your job? So if someone is listening who is outside from academia, listening to three professors, what are the things that you love most about your jobs? And what are the things that you maybe dislike or even dread? I really love the fact that I can, in theory, get up every morning and decide what I want to do, what I want to learn more about, and to to work with, uh, um, as Josh said, with a, with a team of very motivated, bright young young people on different uh, projects. And I hate meaningless me meetings that prevent me from doing so. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I know it's become unpopular in some ways, in some circles, to admit that you love academia. And I get that I have certain privileges, uh, you know, that affect these things. So I say that with all those caveats. Academia has been a wonderful place for me as a parent, as a spouse, um, the flexibility I have, both in what I want to work on. But, you know, like when my kids were really young, I never missed a doctor's appointment. I, I've never missed a sporting event. So the self-directedness, the flexibility of it, the working really, the really smart people I love, and I'll just say my negative now, is that, you know, you're never done. And if you're a neurotic person like I am, that can be hard. It's, it is like a treadmill. And so... There's, it's very hard to leave behind. It's very hard to get out of your head about things you owe people or things you should do. And so that, that treadmill can be difficult, I think. And you, you hopefully find ways to manage it or you marry someone like I did who says, hey, cut the shit, get off your computer. Or when I say I have to do this right now, she says, really? You really have to? And it's right, like, okay, yes, this review is due in two weeks. You know, not today. <laughs> So that helps too, is creating an environment which where somebody will help you set limits in some ways if you can't do it well yourself. Well, I guess I agree with both of you. It's, I mean, I enjoy the scientific pursuit, trying to understand mechanisms underlying observed phenomenon um, and designing studies to try to figure those out. 
and the exchange with bright young people and with colleagues, uh, the scientific ex exchange, those are the things that are most exciting to me too. And the things I hate the most are like media meetings and all the administration that goes along with it, even grading and so on. So those are things we have to do, they're part of the job, but those are not the ones that really drive um, what we enjoy in our job. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast and answering all my questions. Thank you. Thank, well, you, thank for inviting you for us. organizing the episode. Here's the summary of some of EJP's latest articles. I'm Rene, the editor of the European Journal of Personality. This month, I want to tell you about one paper that was recently published in the journal. Personality traits are shaped by factors that come from within people, often studied under the label of genes. And in all likelihood, personality traits are also shaped by things that come from outside people, that is, their experiences. One of the holy grails of personality trait research is to find these specific experiences, such as life events, that could shape personality traits. To almost everyone's surprise, however, the links between life events and personality trait change have remained extremely elusive. One of the many possible reasons for this is that people may perceive the same life events in different ways, and if so, any consequences of these events for personality would also be different for different people. Moreover, how exactly people perceive events may depend on their personality traits. For example, a highly neurotic person may perceive falling out with a friend much more negatively than a less neurotic person, or so the theory goes. A recent study by Andrew Rakshani and his colleagues sets out to test exactly this question. How are perceptions of life events linked with personality traits? In two samples, one consisting of students and another from wider community members, they measured participants speak via personality traits. Then they presented these participants with a list of 21 life events, such as getting married, starting a job, or experiencing someone's death. And then they asked them to rate the characteristics of these events, such as whether the event was, or would be, if the participant had not experienced it yet, stressful, joyful, or predictable, for example. Perhaps surprisingly, authors found that how people rated the events had relatively little to do with their personality traits. The associations were generally small or virtually non-existent. And often the associations were counterintuitive and generally they did not replicate across the two samples that authors had used. Oh, and the associations also depended on whether people had actually experienced the events or only imagined how the events would impact them. So how people perceive life events may not be very systematically linked with their personality traits after all. Maybe, largely, life events just happen. How we take them is not that strongly linked with our characteristics, and they don't influence us that strongly either, at least in ways that are predictably similar for different people. Mm -hmm.